This program was first broadcast on Canterbury's access media station, Plains FM, and was made with the assistance of New Zealand On Air. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space, a monthly podcast of artist talks, panel discussions, and other events. Tēnā tato katoa. Nau mai hoki mai ki tēnei kaupapa kōrero o the Physics Room. Nau mai, whakarongo mai, whakatau mai. My name is Abby Kinane, and I'm the Director of the Physics Room, a contemporary art space dedicated to developing and promoting contemporary art and critical discourse in Aotearoa. Based in central Ōtotahi since 1996, we assist artists with resources and opportunities to enable creative and professional development and work to support the acknowledgement and understanding of contemporary art among New Zealanders. Our goal is to actively seek links between the arts and other areas of cultural production and to involve art as a contributing voice in wider intellectual, social and political debate. In this episode of Art, Not Science, I talked to Deborah Rundle and Josephine Jalicic, two of the artists in World Made of Steel, Made of Stone. They were unable to join us for the artist talk ahead of the opening, as they are based in Tamaki, so we are grateful that we are at least able to meet for a talk about their work over Zoom. World Made of Steel, Made of Stone is an exhibition about making, and how it can locate us, consolidate a sense of self and relationships. Bringing into the gallery a range of materials, aluminium, parawarewana, digital media, steel, glass, wool and language, this exhibition recognises making as a form of thinking. The works in this show invite us to think about the body itself as a series of relationships, physical and material, whānau inherited, gendered and intimate, held in language. World Made of Steel and Made of Stone also includes works by Honey Brown, Isabel Wadeson Lee, and Dagan Wells. You can hear Honey, Isabel, and Dagan talk about their work in episode 29 of Art Not Science. Deborah Rundle's work, Sweet Pepper, recognizes that the body itself is a maker. That is, before and after physiology and survival, the body is also a site of language, memory, identity, a holder of information. The suspended glass teardrop forms come from a dissembled chandelier found wrapped in newspaper at a second-hand market in Barcelona. The poem is edited from one the artist had published in Dyke News in 1983, at that time aged 22. Recalling a lover, the text is both confronting and tender, and has the immediacy of smell, taste, touch, hearing words spoken. The evenly paced glass drops regulate the space like a form of punctuation. Brought together in this work, text and glass mark two long sightlines down the room, alternative horizons. You might walk while reading, read while walking, but also while thinking of ways that the body, everyone's body, intimately connects us to the world and others through sensory experience. Josephine Jalicic's work, Cloudy Day, is made from aluminium, hand-folded and riveted to form a kind of slim box on the wall. The front face is wire-brushed, Marks scored into the soft metal surface. It is cloud-like or fleece-like, like your breath on a window or like a million tiny itches. Though this would be a difficult work to construct, there is a sense in which it is also knowable, doable, imaginable, 
as mass-produced consumer items are often not. The artist writes, It could be said that capitalism mystifies production. It can be hard to relate to mass production, as things are done mostly out of sight and the machines are hard to understand. This creates a feeling of not being able to produce it, or within your own community, creating a distance from objects. Cloudy day is a work you can go close to, look closely at, acknowledging both the labour that made it and the specific character of the materials. Go close, close enough to touch maybe, but don't. The oils from your skin will leave a mark that becomes visible over time as it oxidises. Now let's hear from Deborah and Joe. Kia ora mai tato. I wanted to start by thanking you because I know this has been a much stranger exhibition than or process of making an exhibition than maybe we all thought we were signing up for at the beginning (laughs) when I invited you both to be part of World Made of Steel, Made of Stone. I'd already factored in lots of communication at a distance, knowing that you both live in Tanaki Makoto, we're in Otatahi, but it turned out to be that's the only kind of conversation that we've had with neither of you being able to come down and see the exhibition in person. So we're just moving into the second to last week of this show, And I really wanted to use this opportunity to ask you some questions that have been on my mind about the exhibition. These are questions I probably would have asked on the first day when it opened in an artist talk context. But um, it's also good to be able to reflect back a bit for me on the past weeks of it, of hosting your work in the gallery alongside of the other works. Yeah, if we can just chew over some of the things that have arisen in that time. And of course, you're super welcome to present anything that you also wanted to speak about in relation to the work. So Deborah Randall, I might start by asking you if you could just introduce yourself as you would like to. Sure. Um, kia ora koutou. My name's Deborah, and I am an artist who lives and works in Tamaki Makoto. It's been my home for a long time, and my practice is centred around mostly repurposing objects and also language as material, usually realised in the form of text. And I centre a lot of my practice around teasing, investigating the politics of late capitalism and the machinations of that and how it works and plays out in lived experience. So those are the sorts of things that both materially and sort of conceptually or politically that frame my practice. Thanks so much, Deborah. Joe, would you also like to do the same thing? Can you just introduce yourself briefly in your practice? Hi, so I'm Josephine. I kind of am more of a furniture maker at the moment, but I I studied art, so I've done sort of both, and I feel like I find it hard to balance them, so I'm sort of learning to combine them more. Uh, but usually when I make art, it's quite similar to just what Deborah actually said, but I'm not so wisely worded. I, um, I sort of am interested in repurposing objects and copying things I see around in a kind of funny way where I'm trying to appreciate them, and it's kind of a way to deal with finding things really commercial and kind of depressing and I sort of fall in love with the objects as a kind of coping mechanism or something. That's a really interesting way to put it. I think it may be quite relatable across certainly other conversations I had with other artists in the in the process of developing world made of steel made of stone. This idea of reaching out to materials for a kind of sense of a sense of something solid or something that you care about. I wonder should we start like with the very specific works that are in the show? Lots of our listeners would have visited the space and been able to see them, but of course not everyone. So I wondered, uh, starting with you, Deborah, if you could just very briefly describe the work 
and um, speak a little bit about the process. And I mean that conceptually, materially, yeah, about how that came to be, that work. Sure. The work was originally made for another space. It was made for a, a solo exhibition I had at Parasite Gallery in Tamakim Kodo that is a space run by Daniel John Corbett Sanders or Dan Sanders. And it's a space that prioritizes the practices of queer artists or people who identify generally within that, with that term in some regard. And so I had a solo show there earlier this year. And the title of that show was On My Volcano Grows the Grass. And that title is borrowed from an Emily Dickinson poem. And I'm not an Emily Dickinson scholar in any way, but I did, of course, a bit of research after um, picking up that phrase and thinking it spoke a lot to my ideas around desire, sexuality, self and other, thresholds, all sorts of things like that. And I found out that she had had a long-term, well, rumoured to, it seems pretty clear that she did, a long-term relationship with her sister-in-law. And so from there, that line in the poem sort of veered away from ideas of containment and the hidden world to ones of outside desire sort of sometimes explosive forces so um perhaps that's not that strong and sort of things being fluid and in motion the molten and I think also there were lots of ideas that she was a person who who was very lonely and singular and this sort of secret life speaks of something quite else how you become sort of a a creator of self often in relation or, or knowing of self in any way even in its most fluctuating state through relationships with others and sometimes most you know intimate can bring real sort of clarity even for a moment of how you are in the world and what you want what you know the desiring subject so like a sort of understanding more about the borders of your own identity yeah relationship yeah 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 great to think about the original site for that for a larger exhibition being at Parasite Gallery. And then this specific installation or this specific piece that I asked you to, to isolate, to bring out from that larger context. Can you just zero in on that work a bit more? Yeah. So the work, if you were to see it, it's got a, a long line of text that's an extract from a poem I wrote some years ago and then some found objects and they are chandelier teardrops. And the chandelier teardrops have a vulvate form, so they resemble um, female anatomy. And I was interested in the play between the direct and forthright nature of the, the language of the poem and the way it asserts sexuality in terms of language that's usually more used in gendered vitriol. So what I was interested in a way that the body in space, and I thought of this particularly in terms of that entranceway to the physics room, mm. that the body in space sort of came through entrance across that sort of threshold of a, a, a wide doorway and then walk the line of these repeated forms that each one is different but repeats the same essential appearance. So it's subtle. And I like that in terms of notions of humanity and, and sexuality. And then I played the two with each other and thought about the other works but didn't really know or have a good understanding about what they might be like because of course the install could change at any time while you're working with those works and looking at conversations that unfold so Mm. did I answer your question I'm not sure that I really did no you really you really did I mean one thing that comes up for me a lot is this idea of the inside and outside that 
yes, it's kind of the threshold work that you encounter as you come through the door in the physics room. It's the first thing that you see in the show. And then also thinking about your self-identity and the, the forms of identity that you present to other people in language or in, in any kind of external expression. It plays with that quite beautifully and neatly. You sort of enter into the physics room, you enter actually kind of into that work, which is quite interesting. And then, as you mentioned, there's a second sort of moment of encounter where people see one of the words in the poem is cunt, and people see this and they have this kind of, in my experience of looking after the gallery while it's been open to the public, there's like a slight physical kind of register that happens too when people are like, oh, what's that word? Okay, how does that fit with my understanding of that word, with my understanding of contemporary art, what a gallery does? And it's quite a cool moment, I think, like a disrupt where they're like, oh, I don't think it's been used in this uh, vitriolic or kind of misogynistic, sexist way. Okay, it must be taking up a different kind of space. And what is that? And it's like that register in their body to me is, it's cool. It's like a register of the power of that work, which I really have enjoyed being kind of present and seeing. Yeah. Joey, what about you? The, um, can you describe your work? I know that's a slightly weird thing to ask you to do, but maybe if you start with the process, the why and the where and the how, we'll sort of come to understand a bit more about the what. Mm. So it's kind of like painting, but it's mm. made of aluminium. So I just, I was at uni and then I was getting quite interested in trying to learn a new skill, I suppose. And then I yeah, I dropped out, so I wasn't able to fold the aluminium in the workshop. Uh, but I decided to make this work anyway. It was part of a group show where they just asked me to make whatever I wanted. And so I just made it because I wanted to. Because it's not so political. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. So when you say the folding, like what was the initial process that you were going to do in the workshop that you ended up um, undertaking at home? Yeah, they have uh, this sort of metal machine and, and you can put the metal in and then you pull up the bars and it folds it for you really neatly. Mm-hmm. So it's really quick. It would have taken like five minutes to do mm-hmm. but I didn't do that. So I just did it in the workshop and I kind of just used metal and gloves and kind of hand folded it and hammered it and sort of did more that kind of method and it worked I think because I'd done it properly I understood the material more so I was able to kind of just push it and then it it sort of ended up being quite rippled but I kind of liked that it looked a bit shitty yeah Uh, and then so I just made two of those and then I sandwiched them together and I also brushed some of the inside just because it's nice to make a picture inside even if you don't see it and then I hand riveted the thing together so that was quite hard as well because at uni they have the air gun and so you can just do it Uh, so that took ages (laughs) so it was quite a physical work to make and then I added the brushing which I used my drill and the wire brush and I sort of put the work on the couch because there's this couch in my workshop and I just needed somewhere soft and kind of just brushed it and I sort of went with this cloud pattern, but I was trying to make it look purposeful, but not too controlled. So I sort of let the drill do a bit of the work. Like when the artists do those sort of body works, mm. they like use their body. But I was kind of laughing about it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like that description. When you were making it, like you obviously brought to it lots of your pre-existing knowledge of the materials and the experiences you'd had through using particular machines on that materials. But did you learn new things about the materials or about 
I guess, your body or your kind of physical capacity and stuff while you're doing it? Yes, yes. I guess I'm used to woodwork, which is a lot more planned and all about structure and you can't just sort of make the wood bend what you want. So I guess I went back to more my old ways of making when I used to make more art. I just sort of threw it together a lot more. I kind of just had a confidence that it would work out in some way because maybe it might break and then I'll just put some wood under it and make it different or, you know, like problem solving kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, it's a, it's a question I sort of wanted to ask you, like when I was dealing with the work, like during the installation process and like it arriving here and asking you as much as I could about how strong it was, how it was going to be during traveling processes and all of these things. And I always find like it's something like language only has so much capacity to like describe work mm. or to, to tell you the things that you need or might want to know about it. So it was really cool. We had all these kind of like somewhat abstract conversations about what the work was and how it was. And then when it got here and we were mounting it on the wall, it was only then that I really realized what a like, what a body it was, you know, it's like, it's quite lumpy. It's quite uneven mm. at surface. And, you know, I realized there was like a bunch of decisions to make as well at that point of um, both sides couldn't be flushed to the wall because it doesn't have a kind of like perfect geometry in that way. And so one was going to be kind of lurching out and there's so many more decisions that I had to make or I had to speak with you about or decide, oh, this is, yeah. it's okay for its imperfections to be revealed, for example. One side yeah. of it, you know, it's yeah. quite gnarly the way you've riveted it. And I was like, that's great. We should have that show. And I was like, is it great? You know, so it actually left a lot of edges and ends for me to kind of confront when I, <laughs> when I met that work. Yeah, I think if I was there, I could have twisted the work to make it flatter because it got a bit warped so but you know when you're the installer you're sort of being fragile with it but I would have probably just bashed it yeah you might have you might have treated it quite differently yeah 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 and then it was (laughs) it was when I I think I started to think about you know you make it working in this other creative process that you have around design and like making a table or making shelves or and I know you've got incredible precision you know, you do approach it in a really structured way and I was like this is actually crazy there's such a different set of variables and set of risks in the art making and not that I'm so interested in that as like a binary but I'm just interested in that that kind of space of difference between those two or possibly more than two ways of working that you have Mm. yeah Deborah just because it's the the, my favorite thing in the world to talk about can we talk a bit about this material of language it's in one hand you know sort of talking about the thematic or some key ideas in the show and I was like materials such as glass which is in your work aluminium which is in joe's fleece all these materials that are quite comfortable to talk about as as things and then i'm very interested to use the word language as a material also but you do notice its degree of difference when you try and do a list and include language in that and i remember one conversation we had around the editing of the text where i think i was saying repurposing text and you said no recontextualizing text and I thought oh yeah that's one of these other points where there's like nuanced differences in um the categorization of language as a material and the categorization of dough or wool or some of the other things that I was talking about maybe just to sort of simplify that question a little bit can you just talk about some of the choices you made as an editor returning to the poem you'd written a long time ago and thinking about materializing that in a gallery space or in an installation as you did? Yeah, some of it was about line breaks, you know, that I didn't follow exactly the original line breaks. Mm-hmm. And so I did that because in the context of the gallery along 
I can't exactly remember the length of the wall now, but I think we're looking at about nine metres, that it's a pacing thing. It's the body in motion and breaking those lines up in a way that goes with breath and body walking. And so those are some of the things I tried to think about. Mm. And font, font mm-hmm. is part of it. Yeah, mm-hmm. so I'm definitely not a font geek, but I'm interested, obviously, once I've materialised the language in text on wall and this time using adhesive vinyl. I'm really in, interested in the shapes of the letters and I chose Garamond for that. And I find that sort of a kind of a clunky font that seems to have some unusual formations of letters. And I kind of like that because I think um, the language has some surprises in it, the way I've used language. And I think that sort of slight inelegance of the text, I quite like that too. It's sort of a, not quite stuttering. I don't think it's doing that, but it's... Um, sort of finding its way along the wall. And if I'd used italics or something, I would think that would be more flowing language. I liked the idea of this one holding back a bit more. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Also the way it's, you've sort of presented it in an uneven line, it does yeah. seem to relate to this kind of intake and release of breath or like your chest rising and falling. Or Yeah. And the language also ties really to the object. So the height of the text on the wall relates to the line of objects and keeps the body very much in mind, I think. Yeah. Mm. No, I I think absolutely. This is something I always think about quite a lot. For me, it's become more apparent or something in the sort of extended lockdown times that we've been in, that in every work, there's often a solo kind of author, but then there's a lot of other people involved in the in the making process in very pragmatic ways and then in the sort of like conceptual and life of that work, be that in conversation or even as a kind of time marker, like something I've noticed when I read texts that I wrote a long time ago, I remember the relationships or the context that I was occupying around of those texts far more successfully than if I looked at a photo or I did something else that's like supposed to be a document of that moment. Quite a long roundabout way of saying, I'm interested to know how you guys feel about that, what the other relationships that are held in this work might be, if any. I mean, Deborah, there's kind of an interesting presence in the room with yours because it seems to be addressed to someone. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I'm not looking to blindside you here and sharing anything that is not already shared in the work, but I'm interested these sort of notions of other relationships in your work. Mm. Well, the poem is personal. It is specifically and directed to a lover who's brought from the past into the present through the olfactory sense so you know through taste and so that person was certainly present for me in the shifting it from a poem published some years ago just in text form who were part of an artwork and then in doing that because I found the material um that the, the the glass chandelier teardrops in a, in a market in Barcelona some years ago. And as soon as I saw them, I knew what I saw. But mm-hmm. I really like to think about what the hell was the person who made them thinking of? You know, <laughs> <laughs> like, you know who made them? What were they thinking? It fascinates me. I'll never know. I've never seen any like it. And I searched for a while online to see if it was kind of some form that featured an Italian glass in the mid-20th century, you know, it was a given that, of course, it looked like this and we could make the associations, or it wasn't at all. It was a unique sort of frolic of someone's off to different territory. Yeah. yeah. You are listening to Art Not Science, presented by the Physics Room Contemporary Art Space. 
it's a really interesting idea. I mean, especially with both of you using kind of found materials, they definitely bring this bucket bubble with them and it's like, but you might not know what that is. Joe, you've worked quite a bit with found materials as well. What's your what's your t- what's your take on that? I mean, I think you do it partly just to be practical, but how does that work for you as a coping mechanism? And how do you deal with the kind of other histories that come with that material when you find something that's had a life before you decide to put it in a gallery or decide to put it on a shelf? Mm, yes, for the work I made that's in the physics room, sure, that's not found, but it could have been found. Like I could have found something like that. I just haven't been hoarding as much, you see. I did sort of used to hoard quite a lot of things. Like I'd walk around and I'd maybe go back to a bin and get stuff because I liked it and I might use it again. I just don't have my studio anymore, so I'm not. But, yeah, the whole process of it is less about recycling but not not in a greenwashing way. It's more about the sentimentalness of objects and kind of hoarding and, and being quite, attached to materials like I sort of can look at a material for a long time and I feel really attached to it like it's a family heirloom jewel or something like I do like that they have a story like I might find a piece of metal and I'm like oh that was from you know this Wellington school that threw this out and that maybe was the old ceiling kind of nice because you can put that into your work and it just feels quite rewarding using this random thing that someone was throwing out or something Mm -hmm. I also think when you're sort of surrounded by things like I find this in most workshops or something like that, when you're surrounded by all these things that have had previous lives in other installations or just propping up the door, you know, doing whatever, there's sort of like all these possibilities are kind of vibrating when you go in there. You're like, what's that? And what has it already been? And it's a bit like, mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe it's just kind of basic as that avoidance of the like, empty document syndrome that you've got the sense that like mm-hmm. life is already happening with this material. It has its own sort of stories and you can add to that, but you're never doing this creative act that starts from scratch, which is not something I feel mm-hmm. very inspired by. Yeah. Yeah. I quite like the idea that as well, sometimes it could be like an office had like a weird screen divider and then you could take it and it sort of looks like a painting or you could change a bit of it, put a frame on it and like, yeah (laughs) corporate furniture it's interesting I mean in the actual situation of the gallery it's positioned like intentionally through a conversation but in a really to me quite a beautiful relationship with the window that's to its its left if you stand front onto it so it's sort of got this kind of opacity like a window but it's also got that cloud reference in the title so in a way it's like presenting to you a kind of weather on that surface although it doesn't have, you know, other properties of a window. And then if you mm. keep walking through the gallery and around the corner, you encounter this fleece work of Dagan Wells. And um, that wasn't something I thought about until they were in the same room together. But there is this kind of conversation with it being like wool or it has some relationship to other kinds of surfaces or other kinds of textures. I was thinking of it as well, Joe, in terms of kind of found things or things that pre-exist that work as it comes to be seen in the gallery or in the works list or something. In the conversations we had about making other work along the way and the idea that even though that didn't necessarily manifest in the gallery, like, you know, we talked about these glass bricks or doing something else with a, a reconfiguration or a remaking of something else that you had in your possession, that those works are also acts of making that went on in the context of the show, even though they didn't, you know, they're kind of not there in the, at the finish. Mm. Yeah, kind of found objects, even though they didn't materialise or... yeah. 
yeah, I liked the idea of maybe going down and finding something there and then making a little work or kind of bringing a half-made thing and adding some stuff or something. Mm. Yeah, so I sort of gave up when I knew I couldn't go down. Yeah. Maybe a final thing, like, I don't know, this might be me projecting, but my only analogy, and I'm sorry, it's kind of a boring one, because I don't make anything on my own in terms of like a, an object or a creative kind of material thing outside of text. I'm quite interested to know what you guys think about this idea of on completion or at some point in a process experiencing a kind of, I'm going to say euphoria or like this feeling of like, oh my God, that's fucking amazing as something comes together. And it's just like yours for the first time or it's, it's real or it's something you did. And I've wondered about that feeling for quite a long time. To me, it sort of relates to an exhibition coming together or something as well. Maybe that's a little bit beyond the text, but it's still quite a similar experience for me. And it's kind of clunky and silly, but when I thought of the side of world made of steel, made of stone, it came from the movie Flashdance. And I guess an, an idea I saw in that work was just like almost like a caricature of a thing, but that someone's like welding by day, dancing by night. And in, somewhere in, in the relationship between these components, I was like, that movie for me represents a kind of, expression of euphoria and I was like oh that's just logical that's just part of an act of of making but I'm interested to know what you guys think like does that have any resonance with you a kind of a um it could just be a register of like the physical acts of making like you're battling with the metal you're doing the things you're tying the knots Deborah you're doing whatever those kind of movements of making are or is there something also beyond that when an idea comes together and there's a physical but also extra to the physical experience of ecstasy i like the idea of the ecstasy because i mean it literally ties into my work but i think in the making of that work particularly with repurposing objects i like to work with ideas of redundancy and sort of pushing against redundancy and so bringing things into contemporary conversations through the material and i kind of think a little bit in a weird way I kind of thought about that a bit myself as I get older, you know, not redundant, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know. And so I, I think mine is, I, I'd have to say for that work, works strongly on the conceptually, like the work came to me very quickly in terms of that those two things sort of must go together. And then the material itself, because it's repurposed, it dictates how it's going to be in space. You know, mm-hmm. it wouldn't make sense to pile them up on the floor or do something like that because they're made for that capturing of light and, you know, delicacy in space. So, mm. um, yeah. That's an interesting answer, Deborah. Like thinking about age, which we're all thinking about, I'm thinking about for sure, the different ways that physical experience materializes, I suppose. And mm. it's almost like an artwork is one of those expressions. Yeah. What do you reckon, Joe? Like, do you relate to this idea of like, kind of a buzz of conceptual yeah yeah I kind of really enjoy just using my hands and kind of getting quite obsessed with what I'm making and kind of like throwing stuff everywhere and like you know running around and sort of <laughs> by myself like with headphones on and I'm like I know what I'm doing now and then I put it down and I'm like really using like every muscle to like cut the metal up and I'm I'm not being relaxed about it. I'm really going for it. Like kind of when you're gardening, when you need to dig a hole. Mm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. No, I really do. Really it's like throwing a physical weight behind an idea. It's like, yeah. Kind of using your energy to like fuel that. So by if you just get into the hole digging and just do it and get really like into it, 
then it will mm. kind of have a momentum or something. Yeah, also I find it really hard to like give my works away, which is quite funny. Like when I make stuff, I'm sort of like, oh, I really, really like this. Because like, I spend some time with it, you know, I make it and I feel happy that you made this little thing. Mm. And so when I go to, to give it away, I kind of feel a bit like a little bit sad, but it, it also feels quite good giving away something that you like. It's not really related, but it kind of is that feeling. Yeah, I think it is because it's, yeah, it's like, the word document seems really inappropriate, but it holds some of that sort of energy and experience that you put into it. And in a way, it makes a lot of sense that you have an attachment to that. Mm. Yeah. I think one of the things for me that I like doing too is thinking about initially, you know, the material is attractive as a thing to repurpose or use by its form and then also by where it's set in time. Even going further, that like I didn't know a lot about glass. I, I have never made a glass thing myself, but coming to understand that it's neither the solid nor liquid, it's sort of like called an amorphous solid, which is never totally stable. You know, it's not, it's called a sort of a metastability, which is kind of cool, you know, beyond stable or something. And I like that because I think that's where language must sit. And if you think about, for me, if I think about objects in that way and those objects in that work, then I like that. It's not a settled, defined state. It's something in flux. Mm. So that's glass. And apparently pane glass is heavier and slightly thicker at the bottom over time than it is at the top. Amazing, because that wouldn't be how I would normally think about glass. Yeah, 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 but it's like gravity in a body maybe as well. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Joe, I kind of like the idea of like, you know, I like carefully package the work up at the end of next week and I send it back to you and it comes back and you sort of like bash it back into the, the kind of shape that you wish it to be or whatever. It has different types of care in different environments for sure. I don't mind it getting yeah. bashed. I just don't want fingerprints on it. I don't like fingerprints. Mm. But ironic because it's quite alluring. Like as an object, I think people do. I couldn't help but write in the text like, go really close to it it does seem to kind of want that from you there's something about the breath on the window when I look at it I think oh would that fog up if I breathe on it and I can't help but think that's like the child in me but I think it's it's like there's some kind of experience with maybe with other people too that perhaps they'd relate to that as well yeah did you guys have anything else that you wanted to say before I turn the recording off about the work or about your experience of making this show from far away for me, that, that is the sad thing about the far away because I would love to experience the works in that show together and the configuration choices that you've made. You know, I'd, I'd love to experience it. I mean, I can see it as a recording, but it's not the same as the embodied viewer being present mm-hmm. with the works. And I think that they seem to speak a lot to materiality, but also tactility, although I would promise not to touch your work, Joe. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd want to too. I know. Yeah. Yeah, there's something quite ironic. All this yeah. stuff about bodies and you know the kind of bodily experience of these works remains somewhat theoretical or abstract, at least in your case. For me, it's kind of a funny show, like when you walk in there, which is slightly unexpectedly like, I don't know, I don't know how funny visual plans are, but like the window that's not a window, or this experience of like, what are those vulva? You know, like there's these sort of moments where you're like, I hope there's a kind of an, an off-guardness catches people off guard in the way that the materials can because they're not fixed. They're always in these sort of relationships. Okay, let's wrap it up.
That was Deborah Rundle and Joe Jalicic discussing their work in World Made of Steel, Made of Stone. This exhibition has closed, but we currently have our annual fundraising exhibition on view in our gallery space at 301 Montreal Street. Come and see work by Fiona Connor, Shi Lee, Emily Parr, Lucy Scare, and more in the gallery this weekend from 11am to 4pm. We will then close over the holidays and reopen on Saturday the 29th of January with our first exhibition for 2022, For the Feral Splendour, by Owen Connor, Laura Duffy and Alia Winter. Thank you for listening and tune in next month on January 17th at 8pm for our next episode of Art, Not Science. Hai kona ra. The Physics Room is generously supported by Creative New Zealand, the Christchurch City Council, the Rata Foundation, Three Boys Brewery, Scientech, Resine Paints, and the Crater Rim. <laughs>